Well, good morning, friends and family of Harbins. It's good to be back in the pulpit after um, a refreshing encounter with the word that I personally had while sitting under Deemer's preaching for the past few weeks, and I'm confident that you had as well. Today I step back in as we continue our sermon series entitled Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. Remember that this sermon series is a chronological walk through the earthly life and ministry of our Lord Jesus. Thus, we are walking through all four Gospels, harmonizing them as we go. So today we jump back over to the Gospel of Mark. So please turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23 to be exact. If you're here this morning, you don't have a Bible. There are a few different Bibles in the little seat baskets in front of you there. Um, If you have one of the newer ones, which is bluish-grayish color, that's on page 491. One of the older tan ones, it'll be on page 719. Now, this passage that we'll be looking at today is a passage wherein Jesus confronts the problem of legalism. Legalism is a term that is frequently used by many in the church today. But I dare say it's a term that is frequently misused by many in the church today. Genuine legalism is a very real problem. It's a particularly dangerous sin. It keeps many out of the kingdom of God, and it infects many who are in the kingdom of God. At its core, legalism is a gospel-denying sin. But what many call legalism is not actually legalism. Several years ago, there was a doctor in Tampa, Florida, who had gone into a surgical room to remove the leg of a patient who had some sort of disease in his leg that they were afraid was going to spread throughout the rest of his body. The only problem is that during surgery, he amputated the wrong leg. The left leg was removed instead of the right leg. Apparently, it turns out the surgical prep nurses had had sterilized and prepared the wrong leg, and plus the whiteboard in the surgical suite had the wrong leg listed on it. So there was a series of mistakes and misunderstandings and confusion that led up to and that was during the procedure that caused the wrong leg to be removed. I don't know the rest of the story. I'm, I'm gathering that that guy who had the leg removed is probably sitting pretty now. But the point I'm trying to make is that if we misunderstand what legalism actually is, then we'll do the wrong type of spiritual surgery. Legalism is a serious problem. And it needs to be removed from our lives, but we better make sure we are cutting at the right thing. In today's church climate, it seems that if you teach not only the indicatives of God's Word, that is, what God has done for us, but also stress the imperatives of Scripture, that is, what God expects from us, you may end up being called a legalist. Or, if you passionately pursue holiness in your walk with Christ, you could end up branded with the scarlet L. And sometimes preaching that takes this book right here seriously and thereby calls on believers to conform their lives and ethics to it is dismissed as legalistic preaching. But none of that is legalism. True legalism, by definition, is an attempt to add anything to the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is a denial or departure from the sufficiency of Christ. Legalism can also be called externalism or moralism. It's anything that we put our hope in outside of Christ for our justification, our standing before God, and our sanctification. 
Legalism and its deadly effects are what Jesus deals with in today's text. So please stand, if you would, as we get ready to read Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. We stand at Harvard's the honor of reading God's Word because we do believe that this book that we are reading from is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. It is, it is our guide, our, our perfect guide for life and for practice, and it carries the same authority as if Jesus Christ in the flesh were standing here speaking to us today. So that's why we're standing So Mark chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplaces, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his, not to his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him from within. Out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this good day, and thank you, Lord, for the things we've already been able to engage in in regards to worship, the songs we've been able to sing about your grace The songs we've been able to sing about you, Jesus, as our intermediary, our high priest, who stands ever living to make intercession for us. So we praise you for these things. But now, Lord, I ask that you would take this beautiful word of yours, this infallible word of yours, and make it a sharp double-edged sword to cut legalism out of our hearts. Give us the grace to hear this morning, ears to hear. Give me a mouth to speak. Lord, don't let me add anything to your word. And don't let me take anything from it as well. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, when you buy a, 
When you buy a smartphone, I don't have mine with me, but when you buy a smartphone, they have default factory settings. If you buy anything, you buy a computer or anything, it has default factory settings. And then after you buy the phone, you can go into the settings and begin to change things to conform the phone and to make it work the way you want it to work, to your likes. But every now and then, and and that's what we all do with our phones, and we change everything, but every now and then there's like a, a factory reset that might happen. It might be a software update or some sort of other problem you have with your phone, and you have to revert back to the default settings. Well, that's what legalism is. Legalism is the default setting that all human beings are born with. It's the default setting of our hearts and our minds. Ask anyone on the street, what does it take for a person to know God or to go to heaven? And you will get some sort of legalistic answer, always. Usually they'll say something along the lines of, you just have to what? Be a good person. That, that, that's the default setting of all human beings, is to work your way to God. All religions outside of biblical Christianity teach legalism. The Bible addresses two types of legalism. One form of legalism is when people put their hope for salvation in their own ability to keep God's moral law. The Bible clearly shoots such folly down. Galatians 6, I'm sorry, Galatians 2, verse 16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. This type of legalism is what we can call a doctrinal legalism, and it denies the gospel for salvation. But there's other forms of legalism. Another form of legalism is the type where someone adds to God's law by forbidding what God has not forbidden and commanding what God has not commanded. This type of legalism can even occur in people who have trusted the gospel initially for salvation, but then revert to the default setting of their hearts and and, and expect some sort of external obedience to rules in order to maintain the Christian life. Well, the Bible shoots this down too in that same book of Galatians. Galatians 3.3, Paul says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? This type type of legalism is practical legalism that denies the gospel for sanctification. So there's doctrinal legalism that denies the gospel for salvation. But then even within us, there can be a practical type of legalism that denies the gospel for sanctification. In today's text, Jesus once again confronts the legalism of the Jewish people and specifically the leaders who had led them. He confronts it head on. The commentator, William Barclay, says that today's passage is the most revolutionary text in the New Testament. Now, that may be a bit of an overstatement, but not too much of one. We must understand how entrenched externalism, legalism, moralism was in the Jewish mindset of Jesus' day. The teachers of Israel had blindly led the people of Israel quite a distance from the true intent of the Old Testament scriptures. They were ignorant to the design and the aim of the law. They had failed to grasp that the purpose of the law, including the washings that we'll see here in a second, were to expose man's sinfulness and point him to a Savior. Romans 10.4 says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
The word end here in this verse doesn't first and foremost mean the termination of the law. Rather the goal, it's the end, it's the goal, it's the aim of the law. The goal, the aim, the focus, the design of the law is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish the law, abolish them, but to fulfill them. To fulfill them. That's the purpose of Jesus' existence. He was the one that filled the law up with meaning by his own life. So we see that the law and the prophets and all, all the Old Testament, for that matter, were to point directly to Jesus Christ. But the religious leaders of the day, they had misled the people, leaving them as sheep without a shepherd. And it's no wonder that people who had been spiritually fed by legalism and externalism would miss the actual meaning of the feeding of the 5,000, which, which Deemer spoke to us about over the past few weeks. These blind guides now were coming to Jesus in yet another attempt to trap him. And that's where we see the first nasty effect of legalism. So the first point in your notes this morning is simply this. I don't, hey, I'm pulling a deemer here. This ain't working. <laughs> All right, there we go. Sorry, deemer. That was, that was a joke. All right. Um, legalism causes one to mislead and mistreat people. Legalism causes one to mislead and mistreat people. Verse 1, now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, that means this is an official delegation from Jerusalem to interrogate Jesus. Verse 2, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. They very well may be actually eating the bread from the feeding of the 5,000 here. So they're eating with hands that are unwashed. So this is what gets them all bent out of shape. This, what, what gets their legalistic uh, ire going here is simply hand washing. Now let me take a moment here with a little parenthetical comment since we are a church where we have integrated worship with our children here with us. I need to speak to the kids, particularly 5 to 10 year old boys. This text does not give you ground to refuse to wash your hands before eating lunch today. Or after going to the bathroom. The washing of hands in today's text is not primarily about sanitation or hygiene, but about ritual and ceremony. So kids, Pastor Steve is not giving you ground to call your mom a legalist when she asks you to wash your hands. Just wanted to get that out of the way and set that aside. Now we can continue. Hygiene, as I just mentioned, is not what's in the forefront of these leaders' minds. No, they're obsessed with ceremonial actions that they think will make them pure before God. They viewed these washings to be a mark of true piety and righteousness. And all of this was based not on the Old Testament law, but on their traditions. We need to be very clear. Hand washing before meals is not a requirement of the Old Testament scriptures. At all. Now the rabbis had taken Old Testament Levitical laws about priests washing themselves to be, to, before they serve in the tabernacle or the temple in an attempt to perhaps be set apart for God just like the priests were, they had added to God's word, creating a ridiculous system of ceremonial washings that they imposed on themselves and on others. These oral traditions, these extra-biblical traditions that they had were eventually codified in something called the Mishnah. 
And these fences were to serve as, tradition, as fences around God's law. The Mishnah actually calls these traditions fences around God's law. You remember back when we looked at Mark chapter 2 and the, and the issue of the disciples taking some grain and rubbing it in their hands on the Sabbath? And, and, and they, the Pharisees got all upset about that. You know, they had about 600 laws about the Sabbath. They put all these fences around the Sabbath, perhaps in a, in a good attempt to try to protect God's law, but they failed to listen to the heed the warning of Moses who said, do not add to this law. And so in this case, the Mishnah has 200 pages dedicated simply to washings. When I lived in Latin America, there were sometimes we'd be driving through a nice section of town and there would... There would be nice houses, and some of the architecture down there in Latin America is absolutely beautiful. There would be nice Spanish architecture, but you could hardly see the house. Why? Because every house in Latin America has a fence around it, and usually a wall, and on top of the wall there's broken glass sticking on top of that wall, or the fence has razor wire and barbed wire, and you can hardly see this beautiful house. And surely the architect of the house meant for all the, the art and the expression that he put into that building to be seen, but it can't be seen because of these silly fences. And that's, that's what they were doing. That's what the Pharisees were doing. God's beautiful law was being fenced around by their Pharisaical rules. And therefore, it was being missed. It was being hidden. Mark helps his Gentile readers understand what these fences are. Verses 3 and 4, he gives us a parenthetical comment about these washings. Remember, most of Mark's readers would have been Gentiles. The Gentile audience was the audience of the, the Gospel of Mark. He says this in verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now we're sitting here thinking, oh man, that's just awful. These Pharisees. Oh, be careful lest we become a Pharisee about the Pharisees. Christianity has been plagued by the same legalism. Remember, it is the default setting of sinners to revert back to legalism. And unless our minds are constantly reset by the gospel, we'll go there too. Now, there's no way to say this delicately. There's no way to say a lot of the things I have to say today delicately. But the Roman Catholic Church is built in large part on additions to God's word. Extra biblical teachings that obscure and or deny the gospel. And if we are honest, Protestantism has likewise fallen into similar legalistic traps throughout church history. The danger is subtle because just like the Pharisees, we can take a conviction or even an application that we derive from principles laid out in God's word and make our conviction equivalent to or worse, a replacement for God's word itself. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But now let us see how this adding to God's word leads to a critical and condemning spirit. Verse 5, the Pharisees approach Jesus and they ask him this accusatory question. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders and, but eat with defiled hands? This is more than a question. It's an accusation that Jesus' disciples and thus Jesus himself were defiled. They were unclean. They were, they were not able to be accepted by God because of this. Here we see that Their moralistic, legalistic framework caused them to not only mislead the people, but to mistreat people through a critical, condemning, and hypocritical spirit. Their man-made additions to God's law gave them all the license that they needed to lash out at others. That's what legalism does. 
when you go beyond God's word, you condemn those who won't go beyond it with you. It's really that simple. We all have the seed of Pharisaism in us. And it misleads the church, and it mistreats people, and it denies Christ. That's why Paul is so serious about it. In that passage that Demon read from Colossians, I'll remind you, verse 20 says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. Listen to this. According to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Man-made legalistic structures not only can do nothing to help us kill sin, the indulgences of the flesh, that's what sin is. Instead, they breed in us a hypocritical, condemning, comparative spirit where we condemn others and justify ourselves in light of their shortcomings. And so, verse 6, he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Now, Let me just pause here for a sec. Isaiah prophesied 700 years before this. And Jesus says, well, did Isaiah prophesy about you? Now you may say, well, maybe this was a messianic prophecy. If you go back, actually Isaiah is condemning the people of his day with these words. And Jesus says, but it's about you. Jesus is showing us that the word of God is consistent and effective for every generation that falls into the same sins. So God's this word here that Jesus says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, the Pharisees? He points his finger at us and says, well, did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites too? If we're being honest, we'll see that we all battle hypocrisy to some degree. Husbands, we see our wives' shortcomings much more easily than we see ours. Parents, we see other kids' issues more readily than we see our kids'. Church, we see the shortcomings of other bodies of Christ than we do our own. We see all sorts of specks in others' eyes while neglecting to clear the forest of logs in our own. The root meaning of the word hypocrite, as you probably already know, is to act the part. It's a a theatrical word, to put on a show. Oh, how legalism leads us to act the part, while behind the mask we are completely something different. Externalism, legalism, moralism causes us to mislead and mistreat people. But I also want us to see number two, legalism causes one to misunderstand and misrepresent scripture. Misunderstand and misrepresent scripture. Verse six, and he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Now notice that legalists do worship, worship God. Their lips honor God through prayer and singing and whatever else. But according to verse 7, it's vain worship. It's not genuine. It's acting the part. It's not from the heart. Worship that rests solely on the external external actions and on ritualistic performance is empty and dead. And it flows out of empty and dead teaching. Verse 7 again. In vain do they worship me. Listen to this. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Verse 8. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. 
Now notice there's two things here in these two verses. Teaching, verse 7, and then verse 8, leaving. Legalism, first of all, teaches us man-made rules, regulations, applications, and convictions. And it teaches them as Scripture. That's those fences around the Word of God that we spoke of earlier. But ironically, this leads to the second thing. It actually leads to the leaving of Scripture. The word here, leaving, literally means to put away. It's actually related to the word for divorce. Putting away the Scriptures. The Jews were blind to the fact that their law, their laws of hand-washing, which they had created, were leading them not to keep the scriptural law to love one another that God had created. They were teaching one thing and leaving another. And that's what legalism does. Verse 9, and he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Now I'm not sure why, maybe, maybe the translators of the ESV don't trust our interpretive abilities. But literally this reads this. You do well to reject the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Perhaps the translators didn't want us to get confused and think Jesus is approving of what they're doing. I think it's very clear. Jesus is speaking with cutting sarcasm here. Because none of these Pharisees would claim that they're departing from God's law. And so he, with strong sarcasm, he says, You do well to reject the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. I think he makes the point. But to help him further along, he gives them a concrete example in verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would gain from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Now, these people were willing to use their money for God while neglecting God's word. They were refusing to obey the fifth commandment, hypocritically declaring that the money was untouchable because it was dedicated to God. The the fifth commandment, friends, is not just about children obeying mom and dad. It is that, but it's more. It's also given so that parents, when they age, would be cared for by their children. There was no social security system in ancient Israel. The children were expected to care for the parents, but... The Pharisees were saying, sorry, mom, sorry, dad. I know you're supposed, I'm supposed to support you, but I'm serving the Lord with this money, and I've given it to him, so good luck. Thus, they broke God's law in order not to break their own. How many of us in here look at them again and say, how dare they? Well, let's be careful. We have our own hypocrisy to work through. As I said earlier, let's be careful not to become pharisaical judges of the Pharisees. How many things do we treat as Scripture that are not explicitly or even implicitly spoken of clearly in the Scripture? How often do we extract principles from God's Word, but then treat our own personal convictions and applications that we draw from those principles as God's Word itself? Do I have permission to step on some toes this morning? All right. Thank you. One toe. And you've got sandals on. That's good. God's word teaches that parents must raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But it does not give us a specific prescription for growing kids God's way. 
God's word has clear teachings about sexual purity in marriage, but it does not command us to kiss dating goodbye. God's word teaches the church to pass the truths on to the next generation, but it does not limit us to a particular system of family-driven faith. God's word says we are to worship God with reverence and awe, but it doesn't say if that's with lifted hands or stoic arms. God's word tells us to sing hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs, but do we do that with an organ or with a guitar? What f- these, this could go on and on. We form our convictions on drinking, on trick-or-treating, on the pagan origins of Christmas, or whatever it may be, and we elevate them to the status of God's revealed word. Let's just say we have plenty, plenty of toes sticking out of our legalistic boots. Friends, we Baptists strongly believe in the liberty of conscience, Romans 14. So we cannot universalize the personal. We cannot universalize the personal, and thus we must be very careful not to draw lines in the sand where God has not drawn lines in the sand. We cannot bind the conscience where God does not bind the conscience. If we do, what are we doing? We are making ourselves God. And this will lead us to judgmentally steamroll over people. Keeping our subjective convictions fast and hard while putting away the objective word of God to love your neighbor. Putting away the word of God so that I can hold up my conviction as the word of God. Be careful, Harbins. Be careful. Friends, legalism causes us to be out of sync with our creator and out of fellowship with our community. Our church. Listen to Paul's hard words about legalists in Titus. Titus 1.13, rebuke them sharply. So actually, I don't have, don't have to have permission to step on toes. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths. And listen to this. The commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Oh, don't we see that legalism doesn't avoid defilement? It becomes the very thing that defiles us. Often the external things we think are helping us avoid sin are what's actually leading us into it. To make my point, despite what some, maybe even some in this room, may think, it is possible for parents to prayerfully put their children in public schools for the glory of God and in no way be sinning. And likewise, it is possible for parents to legalistically keep their children at home to be schooled for the glory of themselves and in every way be sinful. Don't you see It's not about the external action. It's about the heart. It's what Jesus is dealing with here. And that brings me to my last point. Legalism causes one to misidentify and mislocate sin. Misidentify 
and mislocate sin. Mark 7, verse 14. He called the people to him again and said, now listen, he's getting everyone's attention here. So he's calling them to him. This, is what, this highlights the importance of what Jesus is saying. Verse 15, well actually the rest of verse 14. Hear me all of you and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that, is, that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Jesus' point is simple. The reason legalism is so wrong and so deadly is that external actions are not the source of sin, nor can external regulations get rid of sin. External actions are not the source of our sin, nor can external regulations get rid of sin. We so easily default to looking at the next external thing to fix us. Legalism hungers for the next spiritual gimmick, the next Christian self-help bestseller, the next prayer formula, the next health remedy, the next diet plan, the next whatever. And I'm not saying don't do these things. I'm saying don't make them the Bible and don't put your hope in them to conquer your sin. You see, none of these things or any external practice have the capacity to deal with the real problem. The real problem is what's on the inside. The year we planted Harbin's, I got a chance to go up to New York City with some other church planters to a conference. And while up there, one of the guys at the conference, we went down to Times Square, we're just sightseeing. One of the guys came back with a bunch of Rolexes that he bought for himself and all of his friends at home. And he knew it, but we, we kind of looked at him and said, well, you realize those are fake, right? Because he bought them on t- at Times Square. He said, yeah, yeah, I know it, but, but no one else will know it. So I'm giving them as gifts when I get back. Now, we can debate the ethics of a church planter doing that later. My point is simply this. They look like the real thing. How do you tell a fake Rolex is not a real Rolex? Well, well probably it'll stop working after a while. But beyond that. You have to open it up. You have to go to the heart. You have to look what's on the inside. And what you'll discover with the fake Rolex, it doesn't have the precision mechanics that the real Rolex has. That's why the real Rolex is $2,000 and the guy on Times Square is selling his for twelve. And so the point being this morning is that God cares about what's on the inside. Verse 17, and when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Once again, Mark's gospel, we see the thick, scold nature of the disciples. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. By the way, that verse right there should put to death any of the movement that I see within homeschool culture and other things to go back to the dietary laws of the Old Testament. He declared all food clean, period. Let's move on. Verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they, they defile a person. Jesus gets to the heart of the problem, and the heart of the problem is the problem of the human heart. Jesus loves his disciples, and he loves us too much to leave us with our legalistic, external thinking about sin. 
Now, we don't have time to go into each one of the things on Jesus' list here, but the point is clear. All of these things, each which, by the way, are clearly prohibited in God's law, all of these things come from inside the human heart. Jesus doesn't buy into the pop theology of our day that says everyone is basically good. That's a lie from the pit of hell. No, Jesus concludes that everyone is totally depraved. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? God doesn't want our feeble external attempts to avoid the things on this list because we can't do it. Romans 7, 18 says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. We have no ability to make it happen in and of ourselves. We may be able to muster up the strength not to murder someone. Maybe I'm testing those waters today. We may be able to muster up the strength not to murder someone, but we can't deal with the anger inside of our own hearts. We may be able to muster up the strength to be faithful to our wife, but we can't deal with the lust that still resides in our heart. We may be able to muster up the strength to walk through Walmart and not take something that we admire, but we can't deal with the covetousness that's still there. Because the human strength, the human will can't deal with sin. It's only dealt with by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The only means by which we can deal with any of these problems is the work that Christ has done on our behalf. We must understand that the term heart here in this text and also any place you see it in the Bible is not referring to the the fist-sized muscle in your chest cavity. It's referring to the thoughts. Actually, it's referring to the seat of your emotions and your thoughts and your desires and your motives and your values. It's your mission control center. Paul Tripp says it's the steering wheel of your life. So whatever or whoever owns your heart owns you. And so Jesus wants your heart, not primarily your hands. He wants who you are. He wants your mission control center. And if he has your heart, well, the hands, the deeds, the actions will follow. God is glorified by spirit-led, word-driven, Christ-empowered deeds and good works. Not by man-driven, man-pleasing, man-empowered deeds and good works. Those always come up short. Legalism misidentifies and mislocates sin. Legalism says that we are sinners because we sin, but the gospel says we sin because we're sinners. It's a very different thing. Legalism says we are sinners because we sin, but the gospel says we sin because we are sinners. Sin isn't outside pushing in on us. Sin is inside flowing out of us. James 1.14 teaches us that, that every person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. If we are sinners because we sin, which is what the legalists would say, then the solution is to simply Put enough external things in place to stop sinning. Just put enough fences around and stop sinning. The remedy, therefore, is in our hands and we get the glory, right? But if, as the Bible says, we sin because we are sinners, then the solution only comes when internally our nature is changed. When we are made new creatures, the remedy is in the hands of God and God gets all the glory when he makes us new creatures. 
2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And then later in verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The remedy, therefore, was staring the Pharisees in the face. And the remedy was Jesus Christ himself. He's the only human who kept and fulfilled God's law perfectly. Yet he died on the cross, taking the curse of the law, the death upon himself, death that he did not deserve. He did this in our place so that his law-keeping could be credited to us and our sin debt could be put on him. Had the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people had eyes to see, they would have seen this in David. Psalm 51.10, created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And they would have seen it in their prophets, Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And listen to this. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I'm going to do that is what God says. You can't fix your heart. I'm going to do it. If they would have had eyes to see, they would have seen that the whole Bible, including the law, was meant to point to Christ alone for our only hope for salvation. So friends, if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, the default position of your mind right now is legalism. You've been trying to earn favor with God, but you cannot be right with God in your own strength. You cannot be right with God by cleaning up your act. You cannot be right with God by adhering to a set of rules. No, the only thing that can make you right with God is the work of Jesus Christ and for him to give you a new heart. And if you're a Christian, then I beg you to guard yourself against joining the party of the Pharisees. I'm giving myself that same warning. We need to guard ourselves against legalism. It's easy to fall into. We need to ask God to give us the grace to differentiate between man-made, man-glorifying traditions and God-given, God-glorifying truth. So we need to ask God to help us embrace the truth that we are saved by grace alone and that we are sustained by grace alone. And we need to make sure that we're doing surgery on the correct problem. We are called to holiness, but a holiness that comes internally, outward, not a holiness we try to impose externally, inward. So cut the right leg off. Cut the external legalism and pursue with all your heart, a heart that's been made new, holiness without which you will not see God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your word. God, I pray that you would, by your grace, strike anything that I said today that would not be in accord and in alignment with it. Lord, I am just as guilty and just as susceptible as anyone else, including the Pharisees, to put fences around your word with my own theological systems, my own convictions, my own commentaries and thoughts. And Lord, keep us from that. Instead, Let us bring down the fences, hold fast to our convictions, but hold to them loosely if they are not explicitly from your word. So God, give us the grace to do that. Without you, we cannot do it. We pray for your grace to enable us to do these things. It's on Christ alone we stand, and that's what we're going to sing now to you, Father, to you, Jesus, to you, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.